0: Welcome to Room 106. I'm Richard Garlick from Planning Magazine.
1: And I'm John Gagan, also from Planning Magazine.
0: This is a bonus edition, taking a deep dive into the implications for the sector of Rachel McLean's appointment as Planning Minister. We'll also be exploring the likely impact of draft changes to the national planning policy on buildings' energy efficiency and development
1: of farmland. But before we get into that... Here are the key news stories from the past seven days. The government has announced plans to adjust planning application fees annually, in line with inflation, following an initial rise of up to 35% this summer, with any additional funds raised by the proposed increase to be ring-fenced for use by local authority planning teams. The Department for Leveling Up Housing and Communities has published the proposals in a new consultation. Also this week, reform of the planning system is one of the first steps that an incoming Labour government would take to boost long-term growth. Sakia Starmer has pledged in a speech in Manchester earlier this week. Next, the Court of Appeal has ruled that local planning authorities may take account of a wide range of factors, including scale, visual appearance and impact on neighbours' amenity, when considering prior approval applications for upward extensions to properties. The ruling upholds a council's refusal of such a proposal. In other news, a consultation on speeding up consents for major infrastructure projects to take place this spring and a new national policy statement for nuclear power are among the promises in the government's new action plan, setting out changes to the nationally significant infrastructure project regime. And finally, planning permission for the conversion of a photographic studio into two new dwellings in the Kent countryside has been overturned by the Court of Appeal after a judge ruled that a planning officer misinterpreted a local plan policy on the redevelopment of rural brownfield sites.
0: Many thanks, John. A lot of interesting stories there, and I think a lot of people are going to be very grateful to see the prospect of uh, an increase in application fees come maybe fractionally closer with the proposal that the 35% increase should be brought in this summer. Of course, more details on all of those stories can be found on planningresource.co.uk. Now to return to the cathedral-like cavern in Room 106, where the comments on the proposed MPPF revisions are starting to stack up, alongside the original consultation documents, of course. John, fancy a bonus visit to Room 106?
1: I'm afraid I'm going to have to pass on that, because I've got to get back to the news desk, I'm afraid.
0: Oh well, I'll press a cold flannel to my temples and
1: head in alone. Best of luck.
0: Well, here I am again in the subterranean chamber into which all new planning information percolates. Thankfully, I can see I'm not alone. I'm joined in Room 106 by one of planning's regular correspondents, David Blackman, who's been looking at the appointment of Rachel McLean as the new Housing and Planning Minister, as well as the implications of some of the proposed revisions to the MPPF that we haven't yet had the chance to explore. David, can I... uh start by asking you about Rachel McLean. You've written an article for us recently about the implications of her appointment. For a start, what does the sector feel about having a sixth minister in the space of 12 months?
2: Uh, I think it's fair to say the sector's view is um, extremely dim.
0: Of her specifically, or or, or just the fact of the churn?
2: I don't think the sector has a particularly strong view about her individually, because she's had very little to do with the sector in the past. I think it's more a case that the, uh, or just feeling very dim about the the extremely high rate of churn we've seen, and the message that sends out about the perception of housing and planning within the government's set of priorities.
0: Yes, it's very frustrating, isn't it, that even after her appointment to the department was announced, it took a couple of days for it to be confirmed that she had planning responsibilities. And that always makes people feel, well, how big a priority is this appointment to what seems should be a, a very, very important sector to the government.
2: Exactly. It feels like a long time ago since the days when uh, Housing and Planning had a uh, minister who attended Cabinet.
0: Yes, absolutely.
2: So uh, briefly, what sort of history does she have in government? She's been in Parliament since about 2017. She 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 got into government fairly quickly, within a couple of years of being elected. She's had junior ministerial roles, first of all in the Department for Transport, then later in the Home Office. And she made it to the heady heights of uh, Minister of State at the Minister of Justice under Liz Truss, at which point when Rishi Sunak came in, she left the government. So this is her second Minister of State role, albeit her previous Minister of State role, like Liz Truss's government, was extremely short-lived.
0: And why might she have been chosen for this job?
2: There is a theory, which I heard during the course of the research for the piece, that actually she's probably quite close to Michael Gove. She backed Michael Gove for the Tory leadership in 2019, which a fairly small number of MPs backed Michael Gove at that point. So he owes her a degree of loyalty for that. So she might well be a trusted body to have in the department at a time when he's going to sort of back him up and and isn't going to cause tensions. And has she got much of a track record on planning issues? Not a great deal. I mean, apart from as a constituency MP, she represents a, a West Midlands green belt seat. So... Obviously, there's, you know, Redditch being the kind of sort of West Midlands fringe seat where greenfield issues are are fairly heightened. She spoke in Parliament about her concerns about solar farm development. I think there's a particularly big solar farm development in her patch, but she hasn't really had a huge track record in terms of planning. And, of course, planning
0: is only one of her responsibilities. Uh, How high is it on her agenda, do you think?
2: I mean, again, this is a concern. I mean, she obviously has the ongoing work that she'll be doing to support Michael Gove on delivery of the levelling up and regeneration bill. So that'll be a big thing. Um, Plus also the changes to the national planning policy framework, which should be introduced. But she does have other big ticket items on her brief as housing minister, and that will include the issues around housing conditions, which have come to the fore following the Rochdale case at the end of last year, where a two-year-old boy was found to have died mainly as a result of respiratory conditions brought on by mould in his flat. So that's going to be a, a big issue in her housing brief.
0: Any other implications
2: of having a new minister? Well, the hope is that she'll stay around for a bit longer than her five immediate predecessors. Um, I mean, one of the issues that's sort of highlighted at times of quick ministerial turnaround is just how many decisions get put off and delayed because the minister simply isn't around long enough to be able to form a view. If ministers are constantly having to relearn their briefs, then that's always going to be an issue. With decisions often of a fairly technical nature, which which have to be taken. So the hope is that having somebody in post for a for a bit longer might clear some of that backlog.
0: Okay. Well, thanks very much, David. And your um, article on that is on planningresource.co.uk. So any subscribers who are interested can find out more there. You've also been continuing the laborious, but certainly labour-intensive task of continuing to sift through some of the changes in the MPPF which are being proposed this week. and I know you'll be, we'll be publishing an article from you at the end of the week, but you've been looking at the changes that are proposed around energy efficiency for a start. Tell us how those revisions would change the status quo.
2: Well, I mean, the the first and most important change is that it actually recognises energy efficiency within the planning system.
0: And what's driving the changes as far as the government's concerned?
2: What this change will do is says that significant weight will be given to the importance of energy efficiency when adapting existing buildings, particularly large non-domestic ones. What's driving it is a general push to improve the energy efficiency of our buildings, um, which, of course, spins out from the broader drive to cut our emissions to net zero as part of our climate change targets. So it's all part of the, the broader 2050 push that the government's on. And, of course, you know, there, are other, there are other factors which are pushing energy efficiency at the moment. Um, few of us will uh, be unaware of the fact that energy bills have gone up hugely over the past year. So improved energy efficiency will not only sort of help to meet climate change objectives, it will also help to tackle rising fuel bills and, of course, fuel poverty, which um, is a massively increasing issue at the moment. I mean,
0: how exactly do they change how planners are meant to consider energy efficiency
2: as part of their work? Well, they're meant to give significant weight to energy efficiency when considering adaptations of buildings.
0: OK, so this is a, a sort of new degree of responsibility for the planning system in ensuring energy efficiency. But
2: will these really amount to a significant change? It is generally seen as a significant change. I mean, a significant weight will be given to the importance of energy efficiency now. The caveat is that the NPPF says that... Applications will also have to take into account conservation and listed buildings policies, which also exists within the NPPF, because often there are tensions between heritage issues and energy efficiency issues when older buildings are being adapted. So there is a concern out there that um, really there should be a, a stronger steer given to developers and applicants about how to balance those two objectives.
0: Let's move on to the other area of the NPPF changes that you've been looking at, which are changes relating to agricultural land. Tell us a bit about them.
2: This is the uh, what sounds like the uh, obscure footnote 67. Yeah. It did exist before. So it already stated that where significant development of agricultural land is necessary, poorer quality land should be preferred to higher quality. And there's a new line in the footnote that reads that availability of agricultural land used for food production should also be considered alongside other policies in the MPPF when deciding the sites that are the most appropriate for development.
0: And again, what's driving the government's you know, wish to make this change?
2: So, what appears to be the backstory for this is the concern that we've seen expressed over the, particularly over the past year, about solar farm development on agricultural land. A lot of Conservative MPs are concerned about this. Liz Truss, when she ran for Tory leadership, railed against what she termed solar paraphernalia on productive farmland. And When she was Prime Minister, the then Environment Secretary was reported to be considering a wider definition of what's uh, of the best and most versatile land classification, which is subject to tighter control than other types of farmland. That's been backtracked upon subsequently, but this is certainly appears to be a a nod to those types of concerns.
0: So what are the implications for developers and, and councils of this, if this does go through and gets adopted?
2: The concern is that food production will be elevated above other considerations when councils are weighing up planning applications on agricultural land and particularly sort of solar farm applications on agricultural land. I think that's that's probably the main concern.
0: Lovely. Well, thank you very much, David. And as I say, more detail of that will be in an article that we'll be publishing at the end of the week on planningresource.co.uk I'll leave you in the uh, antechamber of Room 106 that contains all the uh, NPPF revisions. That might be the last session you have to spend in there, actually, for the moment anyway, until we start analysing which bits of the revisions have been kept and which bits have been uh, fine-tuned as the consultation process goes on.
2: Well, indeed. Consultation finishes next week, in the next couple of weeks. So um, this is an ongoing story, isn't it?
0: Absolutely. Just in the last few minutes when I've been talking to David, I think I've seen another figure in in the distance in this huge, huge cavern that contains all the documents relating to the NPPF revisions. And if I'm not mistaken, it's another of our regular correspondents, Ben Cochin. Hello, Ben. Hi, Richard. You also have been in this, digging through the weeds of the NPPF revisions for some weeks now. And in this last week, you've been looking at some of the changes that the consultation proposes about how the planning system promotes beauty in the built environment. Yes, Richard.
3: It's been an interesting sight. <laughs> um has come onto the planning system in the last couple of years as part of the design agenda. And uh, it first really came in in the last set of amendments to the m p b f in 2021, where the relationship between good design and beauty appeared. And so it's come up the agenda, and it came very much from this rather peculiar commission, which I think it was Robert Jenrick set up the Building Better, Building Beautiful Commission, as it was called, a desperately difficult acronym to remember. And that then led to those amendments in, uh, I think it was July 21. And we've seen quite a lot of importance now given to good design in the planning system and I think
0: this is generally been welcomed. Okay so there is th- this concept of promoting beauty and that the planning system should promote a beautiful built environment is already there but the revisions try to further reinforce that sort of drive in the planning system. Uh, how do they try to do that?
3: I think what uh, policymakers have done is gone through the 21 version of the NPPF. They found every mention of good design and they've added beauty to it, or beautiful. And possibly the most significant change, and they mentioned that in the consultation document alongside the draft, that they want to make beauty a strategic policy. So Chapter 12 is now called Not just achieving good design, but achieving well-designed and beautiful developments. So it's a strategic objective, and we'll go on to how that might be achieved, I expect now, Richard. And then there's paragraph
0: 20, where they say um, that there's a need for strategic policies to ensure outcomes, support, beauty and placemaking.
3: Yeah, that's true. What they expect is in your uh, local plan, you might have some commitment to achieve beautiful places definitely and that that's going to be something which when you come to revising your local plan you're going to have to take into account but I think it's going to be further down the line where this will have greater effect.
0: Okay so what in practical terms might authorities have to do to meet this requirement?
3: I think good design and beauty are singing from the same hymn sheet I would suspect so I think what people are saying is to achieve beautiful developments. You're going to have to look at your design policies, your design processes. So, some of those councils that have heritage policies, they're going to have to be strengthened. I think this is basically seen as a bit of a ratcheting up of the emphasis on achieving good design. So, if you've got design policies in your local plan, you should probably seek to strengthen them and possibly, yeah, neighbourhood plans. They can look at aesthetics a bit about how good quality should be promoted as part of seeing uh, schemes coming forward. That, I think, is going to be the nub of this. I think it's achieving good design rather than possibly beauty that you're going to be putting in your policies, and hopefully that will lead to beautiful places, whatever
0: that is, of course. Yes, okay. Okay. What about development management people? Are they going to face some new duties because of this?
3: They're obviously at the uh, hard end of this. When schemes come forward to them, I think they should probably develop a set of checklists. Though, of course, it's very hard to develop a checklist for defining beautiful places. But if, if a scheme is well designed, I think that's what they need to check. And I guess there are some quite useful tools around that should help around design coding and design guides, which the government has produced. National Design Guide, for example, came out a year or so ago. That will help these people actually see whether what they are seeing in a planning proposal is well designed and possibly beautiful.
0: And do you think this is likely to be a sort of additional spur to councils to produce design codes and master plans?
3: Well, I think the NPPF, as is revised, puts a great deal of emphasis on councils producing design codes. So it's already there. But I think, yes, it's a string to the bow of the design code that they will seek to achieve well-designed and beautiful buildings, whatever that is, of course. One of the interesting questions about this is, if I'm a, an inspector... A scheme's been turned down because it's not beautiful, and I appeal it's going to be a tough one for the inspector actually to decide on because he or she is going to have to take what may be an aesthetic judgment or maybe actually will duck the issue completely, which is probably the case.
0: Yes, and presumably, despite these policies, if you do turn down a an application on grounds of um, being insufficiently beautiful, and there isn't a very clear steer on what the government means by beautiful, then maybe you are making yourself vulnerable to appeal.
3: I think that's right, but I think also an inspector will also find it very difficult to say, well, actually... I don't think this is beautiful. So I think it probably cuts both ways. But, yes, it's, it, it's all. I think what we're dealing here is with aesthetic concepts and intent rather than outcome, if, if you get what I mean. So there are going to be other issues there which they will be able to hang a, an appeal or rejection on in terms of good design.
0: And what other challenges might these revisions present to authorities in terms of you know these, these revisions relating to um, the promotion of beauty?
3: What all this adds up to is a greater emphasis on design, obviously, but also the need for design skills. If we're saying, look, we want to create beautiful, well-designed places, councils need to have the staff to actually help potential applicants draw up the the good, well-designed schemes. And so they will need a lot of design skills which they haven't got. They might have had them um, 20, 30 years ago, but now, particularly smaller authorities, they're going to struggle with the design skills to really be able to draw out good design codes for sites or for their district. So that, I think, is going to be a big challenge and will affect implementation, I suspect.
0: There were certainly a few of the commentators who you spoke to of your piece that appeared on the site last week which people can read on planningresource.co.uk, there were a few people who sort of saw some potential pitfalls for authorities who are trying to follow this um, this proposed approach.
3: Well, yes, I think it's, it's very interesting, and there's been a lot of debate around this over the years, around what underlies the definition of beauty. Is it context and traditional architecture? And I think there's a very strong warning that's come out of the people I've spoken to, the experts in this field who say, well, councils should not, or developers, should not focus on just achieving traditional architecture. The uh, stucco uh, pillars or the um, Tudor gables or whatever, because just by going for, or Georgian terraces, just by going for these features does not necessarily create what some people might say is beautiful Places You've got to embrace modern design as part of this. And modern design could be as, as attractive as anywhere if done well. And I think that's the point. It's, it's not being too hidebound by heritage. It's not by a context so much. But knitting context and new together will be the challenge which this will all require. People point out the Accordia development in Cambridge, I think Sterling Prize winner, beautiful modern design development and uh, other stuff going on in Cambridge as well. It's modern and it's beautiful and it creates variety. Uh, There's nothing worse than a boring pastiche Georgian square that doesn't really hang together and is not necessarily beautiful.
0: Yeah, I I think the idea of context is certainly interesting, isn't it? The, The idea that it might not replicate what buildings built in the same place 100 years ago looked like, but it might somehow... Fit into that context, whether because some of the materials are the same or it references them in some other way. But I think that idea to think about of, of context rather than um, necessarily the duplication of an existing style is, is quite an interesting um, way of thinking about it.
3: I think the the issue there is is that we don't really want to promote a style war, that basically anything that's new style is somehow inferior to something that's... 200 years old, that's being replicated. I think what we're looking for here, and I think, well, it's hard to know what the government's agenda is, but I think they want to see something modern rather than
0: pastiche. I think we have more or less come to the end of our trawl through the MPPF revisions, but anybody who's interested, we've been uh, doing this for a number of episodes now, so um, if you need to catch up on what's being proposed and what the implications might be for you, you can catch up by going to our website and looking at our archive of uh, of other podcasts or indeed by uh, reading some of our documents that pull it all together on the website. Thanks very much, Ben, and I look forward to seeing you in Room 106 but maybe another chamber of Room 106 in the near future.
3: See you soon, Richard.
0: <laughs> Great, that's another edition completed. We'll be back next week with our next episode. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe wherever you normally get your podcasts and to get a daily bulletin of planning news plus weekly analysis and specialist bulletins, subscribe at planningresource.co.uk. Our thanks to producers Hannah Holt from Haymarket Business Media and Daisy Chaku from Rethink. And thanks for listening.